You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Well, if we've, um, if we've not met before, my name is Matt Luloy, and I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here at Liberty Church. I'm glad to have you with us this morning from wherever you are. Uh, and whether this is your church, uh, we miss you. We continue to long for the day that we'll be able to gather again. Uh, if this is not your, your regular church, welcome to you from wherever you are tuning in from. Uh, it's an honor and privilege that you have found uh, the link to our, to our service this morning and are spending some of your Sunday with us. Before we move into our teaching time today, I just want to also take a moment to just um, thank and honor the deacons of Liberty Church. There are seven men and women who serve as our deacons here. Uh, and they have just done a phenomenal job over these past weeks during uh, this pandemic and during the shelter-in-place order, uh, whether that's from distributing funds for Easter outreach, and we're thrilled to, to celebrate we've given away almost $4,000 to, to you and to others in our community uh, to bless people in celebration of Jesus' resurrection, uh, whether that's been care team funds for people who've been out of work or are struggling financially for other reasons. Um, the deacons of our church are incredible servants. They set just an, an incredible tone and pace for our whole church in developing a culture of service and mercy and modeling what that looks like. Uh, so thank you, deacons. Uh, we're, 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 we're gifted to have you uh, lead us in our church and lead us in our efforts of, of mercy here in this region and world. Uh, if you know our deacons as well, please take a moment to thank them sometime in the next week or so too, just for all the labor that they've been continuing in these days. We're beginning a new series this morning called The Mission of God's People. We'll be a little bit all over the Bible today. So if you have uh, the Living Room Liturgy on our website, you can follow along with the scripture passages there. But let me begin this morning with a question. Why do we love stories so much? Why do we love stories uh, during this pandemic, as you've been sheltering in place, maybe you've picked up a really good book or several. Uh, maybe you've immersed yourself in a movie or a TV series that has a great storyline to it. Uh, there is something about story that captures our attention and that stirs our affection in a way that, that mere statements of truth, mere propositions cannot. Robert McKee, uh, who's a famous lecturer, he's a story expert uh, alumni of the, the leadership seminars, the story seminars that he has taught, have won 60 Oscars and 200 Emmys and have been nominated for hundreds more. Robert McKee once said this, our appetite for story is a reflection of the profound human need to grasp patterns of living. Story isn't a flight from reality, but a vehicle that carries us in our search for reality. Our best effort to make sense out of the anarchy of existence. Now, I don't know Robert McKee or what he believes, but I think on this point he is right. Without a story, our existence is anarchy. There's nothing to guide us. There's no framework. There's no explanation for fundamental questions that all of us ask about who we are and what we're here for. There's nothing to, to aim toward or to hope for. And so it's a massive problem. It's a, it's a real tragedy that as professor of journalism Robert Jensen observes, the modern world in which we live has lost its story. The world has lost its story. If story really is the vehicle that carries us toward reality 
and we've lost our story, then we find ourselves in the most precarious of positions. As I mentioned this morning, we're kicking off a new sermon series called The Mission of God's People. As followers of Jesus Christ, what is our role in the world? We follow the risen Savior Jesus. What's our role to play in the world? That's the question that we're going to seek to answer in these weeks to come. But in order to answer that, it's essential that you and I understand the story that we're in. Because before we have a role to play, God has been playing his role. Before we have work to do, God has been doing his work. God's people have a mission only because God himself has a mission. And therefore, first and foremost, God's people are those who know the story that they're part of. We are those who have a better story to live, a better story to tell, because it's a true story. We're going to be all over, as I mentioned, uh, a number of different texts in the Bible this morning. They'll be on the screen, or if you've downloaded that Living Room Liturgy, you can follow along there. Let me pray for us first, and then we'll, we'll dive in together. Uh, from wherever you are, you can pray with me. Blessed are you, God of all creation. You spoke in the beginning, and all things came to be. You spoke, and your word, the word, came to live with us, full of grace and truth. Bless these moments now where we would hear your voice. Bless these moments where we would hear your story. As we listen, may our ears be attuned to you, and may all that we hear lead us to you. We pray this through Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. Amen. So God's people are those who know the story they're part of. Two things that we're going to walk through together with our time this morning. First, the summary of the story. And then the summons of the story. The summary and the summons. So first, the summary. The summary. The story of God plays out in four acts. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Now over the centuries, different authors and theologians have used slightly different language, slightly different terminology but if this is new to you, this four-act paradigm, if you've never internalized it, let me encourage you to commit this to memory. It will help you see the unity of Scripture. It will help you see the story that you are part of, perhaps in a way that you never have before. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Let's walk through a survey of Scripture to see this story as it unfolds. And no better place to begin than the very beginning. Act one is creation. Genesis one, chapter, Genesis chapter one, verse one says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The first two chapters of the Bible are a poetic celebration of God's creation of all things. And it's impossible to overstate the importance of this opening line. As G.K. Chesterton once wrote, I had always felt life a story. And if there is a story, there's a storyteller. This is God's story. The Bible is not primarily a collection of historical narratives, though there are many historical narratives. It's not primarily a list of rules and commands, though there are many rules and commands. It's a story. It's the true story of God and of his work in the world. It's possible for us to manipulate scripture to make it say almost anything we want it to say. 
And that's why there are some, there are some Christians, well-meaning of course, but who do really goofy things like create biblical diet plans. It's also why we tend to overread ourselves into the narratives of scripture all the time. Like, I'm David and my problems are Goliath and if I have enough faith in God, I can conquer my problems just like David conquered Goliath. What if I told you that that story is not about you and me at all? That you're not in that story at all? What if I told you that that's the story about God rescuing and delivering his people? We are swept up into this story. We have a significant place in it, but it is God's story. And let us always remember, it doesn't start with sin. It doesn't start with sin. In some of our church traditions, in some of our tribes, we're prone to reduce and to truncate God's story. We start with sin and we end at escaping God's judgment against sin. In other words, we skip right over Act 1 and we fixate on Acts 2 and 3 and then we never really even get to Act 4. But the Bible does not start in Genesis chapter 3 and the Bible does not end in Revelation chapter 20. The first act is not the fall, but creation. And if we were to continue reading, a good creation. And the final act, which we'll get to in a minute, is not merely God's judgment against sin, but his restored and renewed and perfected creation. To know the story that you are part of, start at the actual beginning. In the beginning, God. God created the heavens and the earth. Act two is the fall. The, the goodness of creation, God's good creation, does not last long before humanity rebels against him. Genesis chapter three, verses four through six says this. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, this tree in the middle of the garden, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. This one act of rebellion, of ignoring God's only prohibition in an entire world of permission. Think about it that way. One prohibition in an entire world of permission. It shatters the goodness and the perfection of God's creation. And that might seem extreme, but consider this. The gap between perfection and imperfection is infinite. It's infinite. And once that door is open, once the imperfection is introduced, the mutiny, the rebellion against God intensifies to the point that when we reach Genesis chapter 7, God is so, um, so, so torn up about the reality of things that he floods the earth, in essence, to begin again. And then in Genesis 11, that he scatters the proud people into various nations and groups because they've united together in their pride against him. Act two, the fall, includes both guilt, our guilt, our own responsibility in rebelling against God. We are sinners by our nature and by our choices, both. Act two also includes the corruption and the brokenness of every aspect of life. Why everything is not the way that it's meant to be. 
When the Protestant reformers 500 years ago wrote about what's called total depravity, some of you may be familiar with that phrase, total depravity, this is what they mean. A better phrase to actually capture what the reformers were articulating there would be pervasive depravity. Because it's not that things are as bad as they possibly could be. It's not that you and I are as bad as we possibly could be. God in his grace is constantly protecting us, is restraining some of the effects of sin and the fall. But pervasive depravity means sin has utterly affected and corrupted every facet, every dimension of life. Physically, it's why ultimately disease and decay and death exist. It's why there are things like pandemics. We all run right now, depending on our political affiliation, to blame somebody, our local or national leadership or China or everybody involved. I'm not trying to diminish that there's responsibility to be had in certain places, but at the end of the day, we should also look ourselves in the mirror and say, it's also on me for the sin in my own heart that contributes to the brokenness and fracture of the world. It affects intellectual life. We can rationalize and we do rationalize anything and everything. It's why the prophets throughout the Old Testament rebuked the people for calling good evil and calling evil good. It affects social life and social dynamics. It fractures all human relationships, family relationships and romantic relationships and friendships and it creates social classes with hostility between them and races and ethnicities with hostility between them. It affects our spiritual life. We're alienated from God. We've, we continually live against the grain of God's good design. We reject his reign and his rule. Why are things so horribly wrong in the world? This is why. Because of the fall, things are not the way they're meant to be. And all of us and all of creation with us is longing for redemption. As C.S. Lewis once wrote, human history is the long and terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. That's a, that's a way to consider all of human history. It's the long and terrible story of us trying to find something other than God and failing to make us happy. Creation, fall, act three is redemption. And think about this. If the scope of the fall if the effects of sin are that pervasive, then the scope of God's redemption, then the scope of salvation must be equally pervasive. As Isaac Watts so famously wrote in his Christmas carol, Joy to the World, the, the, the scope must extend, it must reach as far as the curse is found. But here's the good news. And this story of God is nothing if not good news. Immediately after humanity's fall into sin, God promises that he will redeem that he will take all that has been made wrong by sin and that he will make it right. You only have to read a few more verses in Genesis chapter three down to verse 15 to read this. He says, I will put enmity between you, meaning the serpent, Satan, and the woman, this is God speaking, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise or crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. If you thought there was a short transition time from creation to the fall. The transition time from the fall to God's promise of redemption is even shorter. Within moments of sin being introduced into the world, God promises redemption. He says, yes, Adam and Eve, you have corrupted and fractured my good creation, but 
But from your children, I will raise up one who will crush the head of the serpent, who will destroy Satan and sin and death. This third act of redemption is by far what takes up most of the pages of Scripture. Through different people and through different specific means, the story of God's redemption unfolds in these pages. We get to Genesis chapter 12, and there's the call of Abraham. Now the Lord says to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and from your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." God is going to use a particular group of people, Abraham and his descendants that becomes the nation of Israel, to bless all the nations of the earth. God's is a global mission through a particular people. A global mission through a particular people. We get then to Exodus chapter 20. And God instructs this particular people how to live, how to be distinct and how to be different. It's the beginning of this famous passage of the Ten Commandments. But the part that everyone forgets is the preamble to the Ten Commandments. And Nate read it for us earlier as he was leading us in liturgy. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. In other words, this is not an arbitrary list of rules and commands. That preamble is saying God has redeemed, God is redeeming his people. He has rescued them. He has set them free from slavery and oppression. The Ten Commandments then are a summary of how to live as freed people. How to actually live free and not to do what we're all inclined to do and to enslave ourselves again and again to some other cruel taskmaster. All throughout this story, God is the one redeeming his people. And he begins very early to point to and promise a redeemer. There are tons of passages we could look at this morning. I'll look at just one. 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7, verses 11 through 13. God in 2 Samuel uh, 7 says to King David, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Of course, after David and Solomon, there's a divided kingdom. And after being conquered and being exiled, after centuries of waiting, After centuries of the silence of God, finally, finally, God the Son, Jesus Christ, takes on human flesh and enters into the world. Fast forward to the book of Galatians, chapter 4, where in verses 4 and 5 we read, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, if you've been with us 
uh, in 2020, over these last four months, we've been in the Gospel of Mark and we've seen through his perfect life and through his words, his teaching about the kingdom of God, through his miracles that display the power of that kingdom, and then ultimately through his death and resurrection, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of Act 3. He is the one who crushes the head of the serpent. He is the one who deals with sin and all of its effects. He is the one who accomplishes redemption. The Apostle Paul summarizes it in the book of Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. He says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, and you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Lest we think that God's work of redemption ends with Jesus. As we read there, he has reconciled us. Jesus redeems the people of God. He redeems people to himself and then sends them out as redeemed, lowercase r, redeemers. As those who get to participate in the very work and mission that God is doing of redeeming other people, of reconciling the world to himself. The church continues this mission that God has been on for all time. As it's been said, and it's so much a better paradigm, as it's been said, it's not that the church has a mission, it's now that God's mission has a church. It's not that the church has a mission, it's that God's mission has a church. The Apostle Peter later puts it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In this sermon series, we are indebted uh, to an author and an Old Testament scholar named Christopher Wright. He wrote a book by the same uh, title as our series, The Mission of God's People. And Christopher Wright says this about the people of God, about the church. He says, The church is nothing less than the multinational fulfillment of the hope of Israel, that all nations will be blessed through the people of Abraham. The expansion in and through Christ fulfilled the promise to Abraham. Those promises that God made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and his people of Israel in the Old Testament, they apply through the work of Jesus to all who would put their faith in him. The work of God's redemption, the story of God itself continues on through his church. But toward what end? Toward what end? Because that's not the end of the story. There is a fourth and final act. 
creation, fall, redemption, and then restoration. Where is all of this heading? Where is all of this heading? A lot of people, including many Christians, are utterly uncompelled by a misunderstanding of the trajectory of the story of God. And specifically, uh, many people think it ends with judgment. I want to be crystal clear about this this morning. There is a great judgment. We confess it together. We proclaim it together like we did earlier today in the Apostles' Creed, that Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead. There will be those who on that day of that judgment will be fully and finally united with Jesus forever in the kingdom of God. And there will be those who are separated from him forever, which is what the Bible calls hell. But if that seems like the end, I would invite you to consider that actually it's another beginning. It's the beginnings of life as it was always meant to be. Heaven is not this disembodied, otherworldly existence where we sit in the clouds and play harps like it's depicted in the cartoons sometimes. In the Bible, in the real story, heaven comes here to this earth. The new Jerusalem, the heavenly city, descends to earth and all that has been corrupted and fractured by sin, by the fall, is renewed and perfected. God's people then embodied Resurrection bodies continue their worship, continue their work, but without the curse and without the effects of sin. Restoration is the beginning of the life that we have always longed for, the life that we were created for before sin entered the world. The life we've perhaps gotten small glimpses and tastes of here and now, but have never known in full. It's life, as Samwise Gamgee put it in The Lord of the Rings, where everything sad comes untrue. And we read about this in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verses 3 through 5. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. This is the story of God. And so now, second Let's consider the summons of this story. As we have seen, this is God's story. You and I are not at the center of it. It is not a story that is ultimately about you or about me. And yet, at the very same time, God invites us, he calls us, he summons us into his story. And because of that, he imparts incredible significance to our lives, to every day and every hour and every moment as it is caught up into and finds its place within this story. The summons, the calling is threefold. Know it, live it, and tell it. Know it, live it, and tell it. First, we are summoned to know the story. To know the story. And hopefully, today is helping you in that pursuit. But beyond today, 
Saturate yourself in this story until it, is, until it is etched in your heart and mind, until it's in your bones. Read the Bible. Take a, take a year and read the whole thing. See the incredible unity there is to the Old and New Testaments. See for yourself the nature and the character of God. See for yourself his mission and his work throughout history, throughout ordinary people like you and me. Last week at Easter, we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. If you were to read Luke's account of that in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, do you know how Jesus spends that first resurrected day? Do you know how he spends the afternoon and the evening of that first resurrected day? He spends it teaching his disciples how all of the scriptures, how all of the Old Testament, in other words, points to him. It was easily the most fascinating, the most incredible Bible study that's ever been conducted in the history of the world. Because it opened the disciples' eyes to see that God's redemption is a single unified act. That it wasn't God's plan A of Israel in the Old Testament that failed, then he had to bail himself out with Jesus in plan B in the New Testament. It wasn't that the God of the Old Testament is this mean judge and the God of the New Testament is this loving servant in plan B. It means it's all one story. It's all the story of God with Jesus at the very center. If you've never seen the Bible as one unified story, if you've wrestled, as I have, with how the parts of Scripture fit together, then I would invite you to use this season of Easter to examine that in a new way. And one of the best places that you can start is a children's Bible called the Jesus Storybook Bible. There is zero shame in being a fully grown adult and reading a children's Bible, at least that children's Bible, cover to cover. Sally Lloyd-Jones just does a fantastic job showing how the Bible is one story and how Jesus, Jesus is at the center of all of it. I've actually probably recommended that book to more adults uh, than I have to, to families or to kids. And really, if you're that embarrassed, if it comes to it, I would be happy to send you a copy in an unmarked envelope <laughs> to your door so you can have a copy of it. Know the story. Know the story. Also, live the story. Live the story. I love how an author named Philip Greenslade puts it. He writes this. We learn to indwell the story so with new eyes, new eyes on our lives and world, we stop trying to make the Bible relevant to our lives and instead begin to find ourselves being made relevant to the Bible. Do you hear how that's such a different lens on life? We stop trying to make the Bible relevant to our lives and instead find ourselves being made relevant to this story, to the true story of the world. We are not only summoned to know the story, but to live it, to be formed and shaped by it. This story of God, this true story of the world must become the grid through which we make decisions about where we're going to live and about what we're going to do with our lives, and about how we're going to use our time and our money and our abilities. It should become the lenses through which we see other people, through which we see the problems of this world, through which we participate in God's redemptive work in this world. If you're bored, if you're bored, if your life feels unsatisfactory and unfulfilling, if you find yourself just consuming your time with diversions and, and leisure, 
or you find yourself even entrenched in a, in a sin pattern that you just can't get out of, it's because at some foundational level, you and I have lost sight of this. That we've bought a lie, that we've committed ourselves to an alternate counterfeit story. Without at all dismissing the need for really good mental health care, really good counseling, and really good counselors, I really appreciate what William Kilpatrick writes. He writes this, The same impulse that makes us want our books to have a plot makes us want our lives to have a plot. We need to feel, he says, that we are getting somewhere and making progress. Only people who have lost the sense of adventure and mystery and romance worry about their self-esteem. And at that point, what they need is not a good therapist, but a good story. He goes on to say this, more precisely, the central question for us should not be, what personality dynamics explain my behavior, but rather, what sort of story am I in? What sort of story am I in? Now, ultimately, don't live this story because it feels good or because it's satisfying. Live this story because it's true. What I'm saying to you this morning is let the emptiness of every counterfeit story drive you to embrace this one, the true one. Recapture the adventure and the mystery and the romance and the joy and the longing and the mourning and the hoping of the story of God. Be renewed in awe that our lives get to be part of that, part of this story. Know it, live it, and lastly, tell the story. Here's the thing. Every single one of us, regardless of what you believe, and every single person we encounter is committed to some story, to some central narrative that governs and directs their life. No one can escape asking, at least at some level, these fundamental questions like, who am I? And what am I here for? And what's gone wrong? And what's the solution to all that's gone wrong? And where is all of this heading? Now, other people might never use this language or frame it that way, but that means that everyone has his or her own version of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. It's, it's after the middle of January, so most of us have long since given up on dieting and exercise plans for the year 2020. But for the dieter or the exerciser, redemption might be how we look in the mirror or the number that we read on the scale. For the investor, it might be at least a 10% return, or maybe this year, at least not a 10% loss. For the humanitarian, it might be the number of people that you're able to help. Everybody has a story they live by, one which whispers of, echoes the true story, but is a corrupted and broken version of it. One that rings hollow and unsatisfying even to those who achieve whatever their definition of redemption and salvation is. So as God's people in the world, it becomes not only our responsibility, but our joy to tell a better story. Austrian philosopher Ivan Illich once said, if you want to change a society, you have to tell an alternate story. If you want to change society, you have to tell an alternate story. Friends, you have that story. You have that story. Will you recognize that the world has lost its story? Will you see the tragedy and despair and havoc that that is causing around you every single day? 
And as God's story has transformed and is transforming you, as you know and live this story, will you also be those who tell it and who invite others to join you in it? What is the mission of God's people? First and foremost, it is to know the story that they are part of. If this is new to you this morning, may you be compelled to believe and to participate in it. If you're not a Christian, if you're exploring Christianity, then my prayer for you this morning is that you would be utterly unsatisfied with the counterfeit stories that you've believed instead. That you would see the reality, the truthfulness of this story. Look to Jesus. Put your trust in him and his redeeming work. Become his follower and find yourself then swept up into God's story, into this true story of the world. If this is not new to you, if you are a Christian, if this is your story, praise God, may you never cease to be astonished by it. Know it, live it, tell it. Let your life be so saturated with this story that you can't help but embody and display it in the midst of a world that has lost its story. When you laugh, may it point to the goodness of God's creation and to your longing for its restoration. When you weep, may it point to the fall and that things really are not yet the way that they are meant to be. When you suffer and when you labor and when you bleed, May it point to the precious blood and the suffering and the work of Jesus Christ himself, the one who offered up his life for the life and the redemption of the world. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. With joy, we praise you, our great God and King, for you have given us not only a better story, but the true story. Help us today see the goodness of what you've made. Help us to see your image in the people you've created. Help us to see the havoc, the tragedy, the guilt, and the curse of sin. Help us to see both little glimpses and the great acts of your redemption. None more costly or more necessary or more beautiful than the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Orient our lives today toward your restored and your perfected creation. And until that day, fix our eyes on Jesus. Shape our hearts and minds and wills until they more fully embody and display your story, the true story of the world. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.